0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Now, Leviticus chapter 23, and, and the thing about Rosh Hashanah, Yom, uh, Yom Teruah, the day of the blowing of the shofar, Rosh Hashanah means head, Rosh's head, and Shanah's year. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. So on this occasion, uh, Jewish people are celebrating the new year. But Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, is really a festival of hope. That's what this is about. It's a festival of hope. And the blowing of the shofar is to summon us to worship. The blowing of the shofar is to warn us of impending danger and and concerns that we might have. And the blowing of the shofar is to remind us of the redemptive work that God is doing in behalf of his people. The blowing of the shofar is interestingly associated with two important events that the Bible speaks about that I wanted to share on this morning, because I think these two events are events of hope, and that is the catching up of the believers into the very presence of God, and the regathering of the Jewish people back into their homeland. Both are messages of hope, that our faith is going to result in our being with the Lord forever and therefore comfort one another with these words, Paul says. But it's a a message of hope because Israel that has been scattered, not just since 70 AD, but since 720 years before the time of Messiah. They were scattered by the Assyrians as our people were taken north. They were scattered by the Babylonians as our people were taken east. They were scattered by the Persians as our people were thrust throughout the then Persian Empire. Our people were scattered as they came under the rule of the Greeks. Our people were scattered when they came under the rulership of the Romans who scattered them to the four corners of the earth. Our people were scattered when our land was invaded by the Muslim hordes. Our our people were scattered when the Crusaders had attacked the land of Israel and persecuted Jews in Europe en route to the Holy Land around 1,000. Our people were scattered when our land was controlled by Suleiman the Magnificent and the Ottoman Empire. Our people were scattered when the British controlled the land of Israel during the British Mandate period after World War I until 1948. Now think of this. I just gave a brief survey in just maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds from 700 years before Messiah to the 20th century. We are living in an era in which the Jewish people are being regathered to their land. We are seeing the hand of God and the Lord is fulfilling his promises. If that is not a message of hope, I don't know what can be. Because the Lord is fulfilling His promises as He spoke them to His people and to all who will listen to His word. So when you look at the festivals in Leviticus chapter 23, you see this prophetic map sort of unfolded before our eyes. Because these seven critical festivals, central festivals of Israel's life and character, life and calendar, are moments in which God was intending to do something significant with regard to his people whom he has called. So when you read about Pesach, Passover, and you read about the Feast of of, uh, First Fruits, and you read about um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you read about uh, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, these four festivals are 50 days of each other. They are a cluster of festivals that begin the cycle of the Jewish calendar. And all of those events look forward to Messiah's redemptive career. So that Pesach speaks about Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb, the blood of which was sprinkled on the two-side doorposts, the upper lintel that spared the firstborn male children that were in that home. Can't get into all of it, but this is a, a reflection, a manifestation of the atonement, that God would provide and the necessity for it. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows Pesach, the seven successive days, leaven symbolizes, we talked about it, sin in Scripture. No burnt offerings could be offered with leaven according to the Mosaic Law. Yeshua says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, their false teachings that circulated among our people, not just in the time of Messiah, but the prophets speak about the false shepherds that scatter the sheep. Jeremiah is particularly uh, vocal about that. So there's always this concern for those that are leading the people of Israel astray. But Messiah would be unleavened sinless, and therefore would lead the people in the ways of God. And as the sinless one could provide that atonement which is necessary for the forgiveness and the covering and the expiation of our sin. The Feast of First Fruits is on the third day of Passover. They're all clustered around the Feast of Passover because they have to do with Messiah's redemptive career. And so, the Feast of First Fruits, we're told, speaks about the resurrection of Messiah, that he was raised on the third day, which was the Feast of First Fruits, because he would be the first fruits of those who have died. The Feast of First Fruits was a festival in which the harvester took a portion of his harvest, brought it before the temple, and that portion represented everything he had. And so the resurrection of Messiah was a portion and He represents all who are in Him and therefore we too are assured of our own resurrection in the future days to come. And some 49 days later we have Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, in which the law is celebrated as being given to the people of Israel. But we remember that in the book, in the Brit HaDashah, in the book of Acts, On the day of Pentecost, when the Jewish people are celebrating the giving of the law, God gives them the Spirit of God. And the way in which the law can be observed is only by means of the Spirit that is to take up residence in our hearts. And so this first cluster of festivals have to do with the redemptive career of Messiah. And then there's a hiatus. There's no festivals in the summer months. There are remembrances like Tisha B'av and so on, but not in Leviticus 23. The next festivals occur in the fall. And so you have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Shofars, the tr- Feast of Trumpets, Shofarot, the Feast of Trumpets. And that occurs tomorrow evening. Ten days later, connected to the Feast of Trumpets, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And shortly thereafter, 15 days or so, is Sukkot. Those three festivals are clustered together as well. They look forward to another ministry Messiah has. His ministry of calling those who are believing in Him today unto Himself and regathering His people into the land of Israel. For what purpose? Yom Kippur, a day of judgment. Yom Kippur is a time of judgment on the lamb and the ram that would therefore cover the sins of God's people. And a time of judgment, unprecedented judgment, is to fall out, fall out upon His chosen people. And so Zechariah tells us two-thirds of the Jewish people will greatly suffer. One-third of the Jewish community in Nazi Germany suffered under Adolf Hitler, two-thirds, excuse me, in in Europe, European Jewry, six million, there were nine million at that time. Zechariah tells us two-thirds of world Jewry will come under a very similar time of persecution. Should we doubt such a thing? All you need to do is look at the headlines today and you can see the handwriting on the wall and how uh, vicious anti-Semitism has become. You don't have to go very far. All you have to do is go to UCLA and you'll see the viciousness of anti-Semitism. You don't have to go that far. You can go over to uh, Cal State Northridge and you can see the anti-Semitism. You may or may not know, but the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, Morrissey, had been at Cal State Northridge. That's where he got his education. And it was there that he raised the specter of anti-Semitism. You just have to go north to Berkeley. And you can see how horrific the anti-Semitism is just in a few college campuses right here in California, but it's across the nation. And it's not just across the nation, it's around the world. Do you know that there are white supremacist groups in Germany today? I saw these videos. I was shocked by what I saw. In Germany today, many German youths march through the streets of Germany voicing all this kind of anti-Semitic and and racial slurs. It's illegal to carry swastikas in Germany, but you know what they do in Germany? At night, they have these torch-lit parades like they did during the time of the Nazis, but without the swastikas. This is a hard time that we are living in, but it will get worse yet. And God will use that time for His purposes, and it will conclude with Sukkot, where we celebrate the dwelling presence of God among His people. Because all of this will give way to the return of Messiah who will reign in our midst. So there is this prophetic significance attached to Rosh Hashanah. We can't talk about all of it. I could be here for hours doing that. But I just want to focus on these two events associated with the blowing of the shofar. So let me take you through a little tour of the Scripture Uh, with this in mind. So first of all, turn with me very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look first at God's promise that with the blowing of the shofar, the gathering of the believers, those of us who've come to know Yeshua as Messiah from the time of the pouring out of His Spirit at Shavuot in Acts 2 until the time in which He'll catch us up to be with Him forevermore. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verse 51, he begins by telling us, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, when Paul writes about a mystery, he doesn't mean a difficult thing to figure out. Now, my wife, Mary Lou, she loves mysteries, loves mysteries. Sometimes I get a little nervous about all the mysteries, especially the murder mysteries, you know. And the other day, I saw that my life insurance was increased for some reason. I'm only kidding. Just a joke. Just a joke. But I, on the other hand, I, on the other hand, I have the hardest time reading mysteries. I like watching them. Because after I've gone through three pages, I'm asking myself, what was that guy's name? Who was the guy on the train? Who was the guy with the knife? You know, it's like, oh, I got to go back. And, I, and so Mary Lou says, just enjoy the story. You don't have to, you know, but I can't enjoy it because I don't know what's going on anymore. It, it wasn't very far into the story. But that's not what Paul means. That's not, so forget I said anything about that. That's not, that's not what Paul means. What Paul means by a mystery is... Something that had not been revealed or made known in the time of the Hebrew Scriptures but I'm now going to let you know something that was never told before and this is what he wants to tell us so he's letting us in on something that is brand new revelation from God and so what does he tell us he says look I'm going to tell you this mystery we shall not all sleep that means to say we're not all going to die he says notice he concludes himself as a possibility we shall not all die and we thought everyone's going to die, but Paul says, "No. Let me show, tell you something that is unique, something new, something not told before. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed." I love that sort of contrast. Some will die, some will not, but all are going to be changed. So, if you were concerned, if you were among one of those that might die, know that you will still be changed. And so he. T- what, what, what kind of change? What are you talking about? We might be asking. And he says, okay, let me explain a little more clearly. In a moment. So how, how long is a moment? You know, it's like almost instantaneous. In the twinkling of an eye. How long is the blink of an eye? That's what he means by twinkling a blink. You know, it's very quick. And he says, within a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, this is why I wanted to point out this. Now, what last trumpet? Well, what I believe he's talking about is tekiah gedola, the last trumpet, the great trumpet, because in Jewish tradition, there are four different blasts on the shofar. There's the tekiah, Rob, where are you, man, you know, there's the "Eh, eh, eh." teruah, or I should say there's the teruah, nine blasts. And then there's the truah. And there's a series of them that are blown on Rosh Hashanah. And it concludes with the last shofar blast, which is tekiah gedola. And you leave it, you know, you blow as long as you can. And those of you with shofars, bring them tomorrow night. Because when we get to tekiah gedola, we're all going to blow. We're all going to blow. I think that's what Paul is telling us. He's associating this event with the Feast of Trumpets. Whether it will happen on that occasion or not, he doesn't say. But he associates the two together. I tend to think it will not necessarily be on a particular occasion. But it's associated with it. And what does he tell us? He says, on the last trumpet shofar blow, the tekiah gedola, the dead will be raised. And when they're raised they're going to be raised so as never to die again imperishable. And then we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. So what is he talking about? He's saying there's going to come a time when some will not die, some will have died. And there's going to be a tequia gadola blast. And both the dead and the living at that time in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, are going to be raised. And we're going to be raised so as never to die again if we had died or never to die if we had not when that event takes place. Hallelujah is, is right. The second passage I want you to see is turned to First Thessalonians. And that's right before Timothy. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just as he said to the Corinthians, I want to tell you something that hasn't been revealed before. Now he says in verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed. Same thing, we want you to be in on something. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are dead. Because we don't want you to grieve as others do, as if they have no hope. That's why I say Rosh Hashanah is a vessel of hope. So he wants to talk to them about the fact that there are some who have died. But listen, I don't want you to grieve over their loss, over your loss, as if you have no hope. There is hope. And I'm going to tell you why Paul is telling us. Look what he says. He says, verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So this is God has told me this. This is direct revelation from God. This is what God has to say on this matter. Look what he says. He says, first of all, we who are alive, who are left at the time when Messiah comes, will not precede those who have died. So now he's telling us, here's why there's hope. There's hope... Because whether one has died or whether one is alive, at the moment this event takes place, we will all going to be changed and brought into the very presence of God together. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians because he said, some will not die, but all will be changed. Here he's telling us, well, about those who die, they're not going to be changed without us being changed, and we're not going to be changed without them being changed. He said, this is going to happen together. But now he tells us how it's going to happen. Look what he says. He says, this is how it's going to happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, he doesn't say he will descend from heaven to the earth. He only says he's descending to the heavens. Now, if we look at the Scriptures very literally, the Scripture seems to tell us that there are three heavens. Paul tells us he was called up in, caught up into the third heaven, according to 2 Corinthians 12. In the book of Bereshit, book of Genesis, we're told that in the beginning God created the heavens, sh- uh, Shemayim. That's a dual form, by the way, in Hebrew. Hebrew has a dual and a plural ending form. So when it says Shemayim, it means the two heavens. So what is he talking about? He's telling us that when God created the world that we know, he created the atmospheric heavens and he created the immediate heavens that surround the earth. In other words, he created what we call space and what we call our sky. Those are the two heavens. But what's this third heaven? That's the very presence of God. So when First Thess- Thessalonians, Paul says with a shout, he'll descend to he- the heavens, he means he's coming into our heavens, our sphere of heavens, the sky. But he's not coming all the way to earth on this moment, because it doesn't say that. He's only descending to the clouds, to the heavens. And look what he tells us. He says, there will be a cry of command. We don't know what the command is, but it would appear to be, rise up. Because that's what he's going to say later in this passage. Something like that anyway. And then he says, and the voice of the archangel. So now we know who's going to be shouting. Come up here. It's going to be Michael. He's the archangel. We only know of one archangel in Scripture. There may be others, but we only know of one. And so when he says the voice of, he says an archangel, may not be specific. But if it applies to anyone that we might know about, it would have to be Michael, who is the defender of Israel, Revelation 12, and in the book of Daniel. But nevertheless, check this out. And the sound of the shofar of God. Well, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. The shofar will sound and we will be changed. Now he's telling us, well, this is how it's happening. The Lord's going to descend to the heavens, to the clouds, the sky. There's going to be a command, come up. Rise, come There's going to be the voice of the archangel No doubt will be the voice And there will be the shofar blast Is that the last trump? Dikia gedola, most likely And now look what he tells us He says And the dead in Messiah will rise first Ah, now we know what's happening between the dead And the living who know Messiah He's telling us we should not mourn For those who've gone before us who know Messiah as ones without hope. Why? Because when this change will take place, when the shofar will be blown, when the voice of the archangel will be heard, when the command is given, those who've already died are going first. Now we might say, why? Why do they have to go first? But that's where our hope is. They're going first. And then it says, and we who are alive. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians as well. Some of us will not die. Now it says, we who are alive, we will be caught up together with those who have died before us to be caught up into the very presence of God. Hallelujah again. And so we'll be brought up into the very presence of God. This is all associated with the blowing of the shofar, the prophetic significance of Rosh Hashanah is the blowing of the trumpet, the blowing of the shofar that will result in the dead and Messiah rising and those of us who are alive at the time that occurs will also rise at the same time. Now, I don't want to turn there, but in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, you'll notice that when John is caught up into the very presence of God and is given the revelation that is encapsulated in the book called the book of the revelation, in chapter 4, when he's caught up It says, he heard the voice of God like a trumpet. I think it's interesting, this catching up, the voice, and the trumpet again. And you know, it happens after the letters are written to the seven congregations in Asia Minor. The word there is ecclesia, church. It's parallel to the Hebrew word kahal, congregation used in the Septuagint. But what's interesting is there's no reference to the ekklesia any longer in the book of Revelation. After chapter 3, you have seven ekklesias, seven kahals, seven congregations. Then you don't see the word anymore at all until the very end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, Yeshua's words are... uh, I, I I didn't memorize them. But his words are, I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the ecclesia. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. There's only four more verses or so to go. So there it is after chapter 3. No longer is the ecclesia mentioned. Why? Because this catching up into the heavens that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians will take place before the events happen in the book of Revelation. That's our great hope. That we will be caught up before the terrible day of the Lord strikes. That's why Jeremiah refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 32. It is not a time of trouble for us. We have been passed from darkness into life, light, from judgment, into salvation. There is no judgment to come upon the ecclesia, upon you and I. The events of the book of Revelation do not impact us at all. Amen. It has to do with what will happen in the future. We will not be here for them because we will be caught up to be with the Lord. Now, there are many other reasons I could share with you on that we don't have time. But here's the second thing I just want to share. And that is not only is the event of our great hope. Titus, uh, in the book of Titus, Paul calls it the blessed Hope, the blessed hope. Not only is the trumpet associated with the blessed hope of our being caught up to be with the Lord, but it's also associated with the regathering of the Jewish people into his land. And that's what I think might be the primary association of the Feast of Trumpets. So I want to just take on a shorter tour, but take, take a look at this. Isaiah chapter 27. There's so many passages to look at. But in Isaiah chapter 27, and let me get that uh, verse for you correctly, looking at verse 12. Isaiah writes, in that day, and that's always one of these expressions for the end times right he says in that day from the river euphrates to the brook of egypt now we know where the river euphrates is and we know that it is the northern border of the promised land to abraham that means the promised land to abraham includes portions of syria today because the euphrates river flows into syria the northern border, we're told, is the Euphrates. I don't believe it's its eastern border, which would mean the the entire land of what today is Iraq. I believe it's the northern border, which means be, from your look would be up here to Syria. The eastern border, the eastern border is the Jordan River. That's made very clear to Abraham. The western border is the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. But the southern border is referred to as the Brook of Egypt. The word there is wadi of Egypt. A wadi is a riverbed that during the w- w- uh, rainy season, it becomes a flowing river. But during the end of spring and the summer, it dries up and it's a dry riverbed. The crusaders didn't know the terrain in Israel. They built castles in places they thought would become natural moats because there's all this water. And then when their fortress was completed and the summer came and the water receded, a lot of the Muslims just attacked, realizing they don't know what they're doing and they're building in the wrong places. So the Wadi of Egypt is, in my opinion, there's a difference of opinion, in my opinion is what's known today as the Wadi El arish Arish is a city right along the Mediterranean coast in the Sinai Peninsula. And so he's telling us from the north to the south, from the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned, look at this, one by one, O people of Israel. See, there's a faithful remnant. You know, We, we have a burden, we have a, not just a burden, we have a calling to bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we know that it will be the minority of our people who will be responsive to the good news. We're told in the Brit Hadashah that blindness in part has happened unto Jacob until the fullness of the times of the Gentiles be come in. So we know that there's always this minority. It's always been that way. We're told during the time of Elijah, he said, I'm the only one that's left. God said there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 out of how many? 2 million, 3 million Jews at that time. It's always a minority. When you think of the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, only two from the original exodus enter into the promised land. The rest of the nation is found guilty and is judged in the wilderness. It's always a remnant. In the time of the British Shah, it's only some of the Jewish people who respond. They're referred to as multitudes, but the majority of the people are rejecting him. And so, Paul and the prophets speak of these Jewish people who believe in Messiah or believe the words of the prophets as the faithful remnant. We're few. And I love how Isaiah puts it here. He says, "I will thresh them out, and you will be gleaned one by one." It's always a minority, but it will be everyone that God sets His hand upon. And so He says, "And in that day, a great a great shofar will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord." on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. The trumpet will blow, the feast of trumpets, and the Lord will gather his people back into his land. The prophets are also clear that there are actually two stages of this regathering. There's a regathering in which many, but not all, Jewish people will come back to the land, go back to the land, And they will go back in a state of unbelief. Ezekiel pictures this in Ezekiel chapter 37. You remember that? Imagery of the valley of dry bones. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And I love Ezekiel's response. Because as a student one time in my life, when a teacher would ask me a question I would try to answer by saying, you know. (laughs) You know the answer to that. You're such a great prophet. You know the answer. And that's what Ezekiel says. The Lord says, son of man, can these bones in this valley live? And Ezekiel's very smart. Lord, you know and the Lord says, starts moving and he, sees, he says to watch the bones. And the bones start rattling and they start moving together and then sinew and skin and veins and muscles and ligaments all start coming together and it binds the skeletons, those bones together. And, it's, and they stand up. And then He says, but the bones can't live. They're just sort of like dust and well, whatever we're made of, standing. But there's no movement because there's no life. And like we sang earlier, the Lord then, Ezekiel is told, the Lord breathes on those bones now with skin and muscle and sinew and ligaments, and then the bones come to life. The imagery is the stages in which Israel is regathered into her land. She'll be regathered as bones with muscle tissue and all the stuff that makes a body a body, but the Spirit of God will not permeate her just yet. There'll always be some, a faithful remnant, but the regathering will be first of all in unbelief, but nevertheless some great things will be seen in her. But then a second stage is when the Lord breathes on Israel by his spirit and they now see Messiah for who he is and now the bones don't just stand, but they live. And Isaiah is telling us there'll be a blowing of the shofar that will bring the peoples of the world Uh, I should say the the Jewish people scattered among the peoples of the world back to their homeland in mass and the spirit of God will be poured out upon her and she will live. And it won't just be a faithful remnant it'll be a faithful nation. Now two last passages can I just share these last with you? And Greg why don't you come on up because Greg's going to play, we're going to receive our offering and Greg's going to play for us during that time. But in the book of Zephaniah, always a tough book to find. He's sort of like hiding there just in front of Haggai. And after Habakkuk. I love these. I just want to share two verses. These last verses, you know, the book of Zephaniah is a book of judgment. I mean, it's just judgment on nation after nation. It opens up with the coming judgment on Judah. The coming judgment on Israel. Then it has the coming judgment on Israel's enemies. Then it has the judgment on Jerusalem. It's all about judgment until you get to the end. And listen to these words. Verse 14, Zephaniah writes, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Is that kind of cool? God is going to rejoice over His people with loud singing? That ought to motivate us. We should sing loudly, you know, and we do. We should sing louder, you know, and louder. And then He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, get this, when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. I mean, wow. That's what God promises Israel. And so I just want to close on this. It is also what we can experience to some degree today. God can restore your fortunes. God can gather you in God can heal you if you are lame. And God can bring untold spiritual blessing and restoration to your heart and to your soul. This is what He's promising Israel. And this is what He offers all of us today in Messiah who has already come. So let us pray. And I'm going to ask the ushers, just come on up. Those coming to the front, just come on up. And just wait a moment, but come forward. And let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We are grateful, Lord, for this great promise that you have made to your people Israel and that you hold out to us as well today. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but certainly in a a way that is applicable to us and to our needs And our greatest need, and Israel's greatest need, is that their spirit would be made alive unto you. Our greatest need is for us to know you, Lord, and to follow you and to walk in your ways all the days of our life. So I pray if there's anyone here who has never received Yeshua into their heart, has never heard some of these things, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move upon them. And if there's anyone that wants to say, Lord, I too want to know your son, would you make him known to me? While everyone is praying and our eyes are closed, just very quickly, if there's anyone who wants to receive Messiah has not done that before, if you'd like to just raise your hand, I'll pray with you, and then you can just put it down. I don't want to single anyone out, but I want to give opportunity for you to get on board with God, because He means business with you, He means business with His people, and He loves you with an everlasting love. So if there's anyone that would want to receive Messiah, you may have been raised in a church or maybe in a synagogue. And this may seem like, wait a minute, I'm already a believer, I know who he is, or I'm Jewish, I don't need to know. I've felt that way for a while. But again, open your heart to him, let him speak to you. And if this is your moment, your day, you can just raise your hand, put it down, and I'll pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the blessings you've bestowed upon us. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to give back to you. May these gifts be used to enhance your kingdom and ministry through Beth Ariel L.A. This day we pray. We are grateful for them. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.